Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. The afterglow, the aftermath, picking up the wreckage, whatever it is when it comes to a Ryder Cup, whoever wins, there's a lot to unpack. And there's probably nobody that I could ask to have this conversation with that I would appreciate their perspective more than the guy who's going to join me. He captained the European side back in 2014, and he is now an essential voice in the game covering it, Sky Sports uh, over in Europe, and of course on Live From on Golf Channel, it's Paul McGinley. And, and Paul's perspective on all this stuff, and, and primarily he, he's not going to speculate so much on what is wrong with the United States, but he will talk as much as he will. Like he won't give away all of the most important secrets but his perspective on what happened in Rome and why Europe is why Europe is, it's coming up right now. This Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. And you might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that, on average, a focus grip of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we welcome in the 2014 European Ryder Cup captain, Paul McGinley. Paul, my friend, how are you? I'm good, Gary. Thank you. Good. I'm uh, down in Portugal having a few days break after four weeks in a row doing TV. So, uh, yeah, emotionally, I'm, I'm a bit uh, out of gas, but that's all right. Listen, you're, you're awfully kind to indulge me uh, to give me this time. I know how much our audience is going to appreciate your perspective a couple days removed for, from all of this. But, Paul, I want to I go back to August 1 of 22, which was the day that Luke Donald was appointed the captain. The circumstances surrounding that were, were unorthodox. It was different because of what had transpired in the immediate aftermath of, of Henrik making the decision to go to live that process how different was that from what is normally the regular process for the dis, the deciding of who is going to be the captain what we've done in Europe over the years uh, is that we have evolved it into the three most recent captains as well as a representative of the players committee as well as Keith Pelly being a five-man committee that makes that decision so for the decision in Henrik um, those three most recent captains were Podrick, Thomas and Darren, along with, I think it was David Howell from the Players Committee and Keith Pelly. And they made the choice that uh, Henrik would be the captain. Um, as you know, that went down the road for a couple, of, uh, a couple of months and then Henrik went to live and he no longer was uh, able to be captain. And uh, so what happened then was we were in a little bit of a flux as to where we were going to go from there. Um, and the view then was that it, we needed to do uh, a resitting of this committee. But one of the things that was happening at the time uh, was the possibility of bringing back an ex-captain. 
and Thomas Bjorns was 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 a person whose name uh, was uh, was thrown around as you know the most recent home captain. Uh, and rather than have co- him compromised in any way, uh, he was asked to be excused from that committee uh, because his name would be part of the discussion. Um, he wasn't pushing himself to be so, but just in terms of transparency, it was better that we had a conversation about an ex-captain without him being part of it. Um, so they asked me to go back on the committee uh, to help with the decision on Luke, and we came to the decision that, you know, we were going to continue going forward, uh, and it wasn't a case of going back to an old captain and not to panic, and that we had a great opportunity to kind of, you know, bring in somebody with a huge Ryder Cup CV and record and popular with the players and Luke. And and I think it's fair to say uh, the Luke Donald we see now is a different Luke Donald than on the 1st of August last year. I think he's evolved as a person. Um, I think he's become more confident in the public arena in terms of speaking and interviews. Um, he did a phenomenal job as captain. And, you know, I think that speaks a lot to our backroom team uh and ride a cop because we have a, a solid backroom team of people who work you know with the you know whether it be the whether it be the, the caddy master whether it be the physios and the doctors whether it be scott crockett who's the head of media um uh, or somebody who looks after player liaison and you know all the, the wishes of the players leading into it. we have a solid team uh in place and then the captain just sits on top of that team and i think it says a lot to their team that you know they've molded they molded they've molded me they molded Thomas. They molded all of us as captains into a positions uh, to be, you know, pretty good captains. And, uh, and I think they've done the same with Luke. The um, you use the word let's you know panic and and don't panic. Um, I, I said in immediate in the immediate aftermath of Europe winning, you have to take into consideration where everything was when he was appointed. There was a lot of turbulence around the DP World Tour around what was going to be a big transition, a big pivot, whether it was the the players who were a part of all these teams, Paul, for the last 20 years, whether they had any playing days left in them or not, they were going to be part of the back bench. They were going to be a part of the intelligentsia of of Team Europe going forward starting this year. Um, How did you know that, that everything was going to be as tranquil as it could have been? How long did that take for you to believe you know what? We're in good hands. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think we were in that much of turmoil. I, I think trust the process and trust the people. As I say, this, this committee, the, this group of people who sits behind the captain is a very, very well-drilled, brilliant committee. And, uh, you know, <laughs> once you put a captain in place there, you know, that captain is going to be molded in what we call a European way. Uh, you know, how they conduct themselves. And um, yes, the captain comes in with his ideas and, you know, he filters those in and they come together. Like, for example, we had a change in our statistics behind the scenes. Um, you know, we were using using a different company uh, in previous Ryder Cups and, and, and Luke was of the view, no, I want to use Eduardo Molinari and I want to use his statistics and I also want to be a vice captain. And, you know, those wishes are, are, are granted. So uh, the captain does have a lot of say. Uh, he comes in, he gets a he gets an overall budget as well, too, and how he wants to spend that budget. And, you know, he, he puts those things forward and they meet regularly. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drilling that goes on. And I think it's fair to say from a media point of view, uh, there's a lot of drilling went on with, with Luke. Um, you know, make sure his messaging was clear. Um, make sure his communication was clear. Make sure that when he got in front of the media, he didn't put himself into a position where he could have been seen to be either lying or 
you know, not answering a question and coming in with a lot of integrity and, and, and doing things the right way. Uh, you know, Scott Crockett, I can't give you, tell you enough praise and credit that we all have, whoever worked with him, who's our head of media behind the scenes. He does an amazing job. And, you know, he certainly changed me as a personality. Um, you know, he certainly, you know, molded me in a very positive way. I was very raw when I came in and, you know, was a lot more polished when I finished. And, and I think it's same can be said for Luke. The um, the decision to flip to to force him to start the Friday session, you'd have to go back uh, to 93. And, and for some people, it's like, well, that's ominous. The last time it was that way in Europe, the United States won. Your colleague, Brandel Chambly, early in the week went on the air and said it was a mistake. He thought that, you know, the momentum that can be gained later in the day by having that for, that format second uh, could prove to be a mistake. Clearly it wasn't. But Paul... The reason I bring that up is that this is not just something that Europe is good in foursomes generally. They're outstanding over there. But the United States has been very good in foursomes in the United States. The last four Ryder Cups in the States, the U.S. is, is 21 and 11 in that format. And, and they've always led with it as well in the last four. I think it speaks to the, the, the home course advantage and and kind of all of the stuff that comes with walking on that first tee on a Friday in that funky format in an environment that is so dissimilar from what they're used to. I think it's the most significant home field advantage in all of sports, that format in that environment. What do you think about that? It is what you make of it, Gary. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we make a lot of it at home. Um, you know, we use it as m as constructively uh, as we can to give ourselves an advantage. Whether that's setting up the golf course, whether that's analysing our players and analysing American players, looking at strengths and weaknesses and setting up the golf course accordingly, whether it's having the Italian Open or the French Open for three or four editions before the Ryder Cup once it's announced so the players get used to playing the golf course and getting some feedback in that regard. And then also it's about uh, the pairings of, you know, uh, it's not just about putting two guys together because they're great friends or they might have played well in, in the past. It's about what's their skill sets and how are the skill sets going to be suited to the test, the difficult discipline that foursomes is. Uh, so it's a combination of all of those things. And then, of course, it's riding the wave of home support and it's coming out of the blocks quick. You know, what we seem to do very, very well is come out of the blocks quick, uh, certainly playing at home. Uh, so it's a combination of all of those things, um, but we certainly use it to our advantage. And I think a big advantage is we know the golf course intimately. You know, our players know the golf course. You know, that French Open, I've been playing there since 1992 on that French Open golf course. Every, every one of the players in France had had a top 10 finish or better uh, in the French Open over those years. I think with six or seven of our players had played the last couple of Italian Opens around there. And we obviously had a great uh, recce down there a few weeks ago where all 12 of our players went down there for two days and played it. So we were used to it. And we were ready for the golf course. The golf course was to our advantage. And it was tailored that way where, by, by the use of statistics. You know, one of the things that was very clear, I said it on TV, and I don't want to give too much away, but we were, we're, a, we were a better team statistically in America uh, collectively um, at around the 200 to 240-yard mark. America were very good with wedges in their hands. You know, anything from kind of 100 yards to 135, America were were, were, were much better than us. So, you know, setting up the golf course, uh, it's not about just tailoring rough. Everything's always pinching in the fairways and that kind of thing. It's not. What we did was we took three par fours and we made them drivable par fours. You know, three par fours that were drives and wedges, which would have been strength to America. And we actually moved the tee boxes up and, and made them at 200 
you know, it made them, sorry, 300 yards or 330 yards. And, and uh, obviously that's where, you know, our strength was going to be. Um, so that's, that's kind of, when I talk about tailoring the golf course, they were uh, clever ways to put the little, the odds, just a little bit in our, in our favor. Um, without, you know, losing the integrity of the golf course. The, um, if you look at, okay, 2010, it's tight, it's tense. 2012, everybody knows uh, it was incredibly tense. And then starting with your team, five straight blowouts. You know, three, three by Europe, two by the United States, 14, 16, 18, 21, now 23. Does the Ryder Cup at large have a quandary here? I don't think so. Um, I think what's clear is certainly I can speak from a European perspective. We've nailed the template at home. Uh, I use that word template and, mm-hmm. you know, template w- was something that we did that I kind of learned all my years and I brought it together collectively and wrapped, put a bow around it and kind of did, did what I did. And, you know, Thomas and, and Luke have very much stayed within that template and, and, and we've continued down that road. It's clearly defined and we've done that. America are very good as well too, with their template at home and how they set up the golf course. You know, this, it's not just us that are you know, clever in terms of how we set the golf course. America do the same when we go over there and, and you know, they, they tailor the golf course according to their strengths and away from our strengths, uh, which is, which is what, but uh, I think, I think it's fair to say from both sides, certainly from a European perspective, we have not nailed that template away from home. We have a lot of work to do. As much as we've nailed a home template, uh, we have a lot of work to do in in saying, okay, that was that. That home template does not necessarily work away from home. we got a different side of criteria we have to put in place, and there's different dynamics at play, and we're going to have to dream it up for what is an away template. So that's a challenge. I see that as a challenge, and it's going to be even more of a challenge, the fact that we're going to be in New York, which is obviously going to be a, a very hostile environment. Uh, but, you know, sometimes that can work to your advantage. I played in Detroit in 2004 under Bernard Langer. That was a very hostile environment, and we relished in it, and we won by a record margin. So it can be done. And uh, we have a lot of work in Europe now to go away and dream up what the away template is. Paul, you know, the other day you were speaking about the culture of the European Ryder Cup team. And, and after your team won, I, I wrote some thoughts on just it's dime store analysis. It's from a complete outsider. My view of why you guys are so good. Um, and it's not as glib as they make more putts. I think it runs very, no. very deep. And, and you talked about you talked about these nations. You talked about the size of these countries. A country like Northern Ireland has the population that the equivalent of the state of Idaho Sweden, a population in the state of Minnesota, and, and I can go on. Uh, to me, there are layers of allegiance that you guys have, and I think those, those are not intangible. I think they're tangible. I think that stuff is powerful. Um, how did, how did the, the culture of, European, of, of Ryder Cup Europe, when did you, as the captain, what were the things you felt you needed to touch upon to make these guys feel the humility and the privilege to represent that jersey? Well, again, it's all kind of part of our template um, because it's like a lot of some things that are very, very complex, uh, Gary, whatever it may be in business or whatever, the best way of getting the answers and stuff is to distill it down to something smaller. Um, and, and, and I had a view very clearly, and it comes from my background in Ireland. You know, in Ireland, we've got 32 counties in Ireland. Um, like you have states in America, and uh, they're very, very small. We've only got a, between north and south, we've got, what, have we got 6 million people total in population? 
Uh, and we've got 32 counties north and south. And Gaelic football in Ireland is a big, big deal, as, as you know, people might have watched Gaelic football and hurling. And uh, it's an amateur sport. You get 80,000 people at the games um, from quarterfinals onwards and 30, 40, 50,000 at the other games. And But the big thing is you can only play for the county you're born in, right? So there's no transfers. And if you happen to be Tom Brady and you're born in, you know, uh, uh, you know, as good as Tom Brady and you happen to be born in a county that's not very good. Well, unfortunately, that's tough luck. You know, you're never going to be, uh, you know, the Tom Brady of, of, of Gaelic football. Um, so I took that idea and what I did was I wanted to put that in a European context. We're not just here representing a blue flag. And I wanted to distill it down because everybody, one thing that we're all united in, Gary, and I can speak for most people in the world, uh, we are very, very proud of where we come from. We're very, very proud of our roots. And when you touch somebody's heart, uh, a good way to do it is through where they're from. Um, most of us have got great experiences of growing up, the little town or village that we're from, the aunties, the uncles that are still living there, the friends we went to school with, the girlfriends that we used to have, you know, all of those things, those first love and all the stuff that happened. Um and, and that bloomed out of that little town and village you're from. Uh, and, you know, I, I wanted to bring the players back to that place in our minds. Um, that, look, you're not, as much as we're here representing this blue flag of Europe and United, uh, we're also individuals and we all come from different places. And uh, so what, I spent a lot of time, and whether it be tailoring the rooms or whether it be communication with the players about representation, not of Europe as a whole, but of, of, um, of, of the town, the village, the people that you represented who will all be tuning in and watching in the, you know, around the pub in Ireland or, or watching at home, uh, proud of you. And every time they come on, they're going to be watching you. And, you know, it's the same whether it be Martin Keimer. I remember having chats with Martin because uh, captain in 14 and, and Germany had won the World Cup soccer that year. And, you know, so, uh, Martin is a big uh, German fan, German, obviously German soccer fan, big, big, big fan of, of soccer. And, you know, I said, Martin, just as you were sitting down and watching the German team during the World Cup and emotionally invested in every single kick that was going on in that final, German people uh, are going to be doing the same when you're on TV playing in this Ryder Cup. And, you know, out there, be representative of them and be aware. Um, it, it was just, it's something about igniting the heart. I'm a really believer that when, when players and sports people are inspired and they're playing from the heart, they go to a higher level than, than if they're playing from their head or they're told to do something. Uh, when, when it comes certainly through their heart and they have an emotional investment in something or representation of something, uh, that some, a magic happens. And uh, so that's what I used. And, and I, I think Luke took it to another level, a better level uh, in terms of doing that this year. And uh, he made some videos, personal videos from the people that were important to each player. Um, and he sent it to them uh, in a video and they all watched it privately in the rooms. And, and I think that really ignited a lot of them. I heard John Ram. And talking about a lot of tears, you know, when they, when they watched that video, because it was, uh, you know, as much as you're there, John Ram representing, you know, the blue flag and the DP World Tour and all that goes with it. We get that. But to really ignite, you know, uh, these players, I really feel you got to do it through the heart. And the best way to do it is is from the people, their loved ones in particular. The um, you mentioned the DP World Tour. I, I I call it layers of allegiance. Whether it be the the little community you're from, the the country you're from, um, the European flag, and then the DP World Tour. And I've always thought, Paul, that that 
however long they may have played on the DP World Tour and, and maybe a modest amount of time before they make their way to the PGA Tour and the lion's share of these guys make most of their living on the, uh, on the PGA Tour, but they never forget where they came from. And I, look, I think the PGA of America people, I know all those people, they have good intent and, and I think they're good folks. But the PGA Tour players representing the United States on this team, they're not playing for the PGA of America and their livelihood. I know financially what this means to, to, to the lifeblood of the DP World Tour and how important it is. So I, I've always felt that that's a powerful thing and the idea of using the idea that we're the underdog because we're representing something that, that is not the PGA Tour, and I get it, it's the PGA of America. I think there's a disconnect between the American players and they look around at these people wearing the same uniforms they don't really know who these people are. I think that's a challenge for them. I think it is too, Gary. And and I think, you know, we certainly benefit from being smaller. Um, you know, being smaller, it's easier to kind of connect and, and, and unify people. America is a massive country with a massive population in it. And as much as you're all very proud to be Americans, uh, as I say, it's that engagement of the heart. Uh, we, we seem to be better at, at doing that. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I know. I don't want to give too many uh, secrets away as to how America <laughs> go about it, but uh, it's something that we feel is very, very important. And um, yeah, I, I get that. And, and, you know, we do take advantage of that and we are aware of that. It's a lot harder to unify, you know, a country as vast and as big um, as America uh, uh, than, it, than it would be, you know, Europe, um, you know, particularly when we all come from such diverse backgrounds. Paul, I, I was having a conversation last night with Michael Bamberger, the writer, and I told Michael, I said, Michael, I don't know what projects you have on the horizon, but, but a book needs to be written about the European Ryder Cup team. I personally think, Paul, it's, and I, I've, I've covered all sports in my career, um, and I, I, I study these great cultures, franchises, programs, whether it be college, like Duke basketball, they call it the brotherhood. And you're there, whether it's for a year or four years or whatever, um, you, you, you know, you're always representing it. I think the European Ryder Cup team is one of the great teams that we've seen in global sports in the last 40 years. I know you agree with that, but, but how did how 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 did how did the European Ryder Cup team become one of the great teams in global sport? I think I think we've been blessed with um, great people carrying on the mantle and establishing a culture within the team and a code of behavior within the team. Um, and it, I'm not talking about captains here. I'm talking about players. So you look at, at the handover of the top players. The top players are so important in a Ryder Cup team, uh, Gary, not just in terms of the hall of points that you need from the top players, but they set the culture of a team. Because when I come into my first Ryder Cup environment in 2002, I wasn't coming in on a lot of form because 9-11 happened the year before. I'd gone from sixth in the money list to 35th in the money list. I wasn't having a great year. I was worried going into this Ryder Cup and it was like, how am I going to get through this huge big event, not on my game and slipping 30 places down the yard of merit. And, you know, we'd a few players off form like everybody does over a 12 month period. And, and when I walked into that team environment, um, I walked into a culture, I walked into a culture and a code of behavior and an excitement, excuse me, and an excitement 
and a sense of fun, a sense of adventure that oozed out of the top players. You know, I'm talking about Sergio. I'm talking about Lee Westwood. Um, I'm talking about Alazabal. I'm talking about Bernard Langer. Um, you know, I'm talking about Ian Woosnam. You know, those were the top players of that team in 2002, Colin Montgomery. And you sat into my first meeting and I looked around and they were so buoyed, so excited. And they had not an aggressive determination, but a sense of adventure and relishing of the challenge that was ahead. And it takes my mood as a rookie going in a little bit worried to raises it up, you know, and then you get in the golf course and then the banter starts. You've a bit of crack and you a bit of fun and you kind of lose yourself and you, you kind of forget. Oh, by the way, I was playing rubbish the last few weeks. You know, now my game's in pretty good shape. You know, your mood changes. Uh, so, so that culture, that's just one example, but then that moves, you know, then those moves. I mean, you look at what we've happened here this time, you know, so, so, so those people, you know, Bernard Langer, Ian Musman move away, you know, and then other players come, you know, the Westwoods and the Garcias come to the front and the Darren Clarks come to the front. And, you know, now they're starting to, you know, carry on that legacy and that culture and culture is a, is a code of behavior and, 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 and it's an environment within the team. Um, you know, and then you move on the Rory McIlroy's, the John Rams and the, and the Victor Hoblins have talked a lot about this week that one of the advantages this week that they didn't appreciate uh, was the fact that because those live players were not there, those big characters that had carried a mantle and because they went there, it kind of forced them to step up and be those soldiers and be those people that are establishing the culture and they seem to relish it. Um, so it, it's kind of handed down through the top players in particular because you know, culture does not start from the bottom players up. Uh, it starts from the top players down. Um, and, you know, the, the captain has to oversee that and coordinate that and embellish it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's what we're blessed with. Now, let's not get too carried away here. You know, you're giving, me great, you're giving us great credit here, Gary. You know, we're coming off a record loss in Whistling Straits two years ago. Absolutely. Right? So, as I say, we have a lot, lot to do in terms of, of, of being as good an environment and team away from home you know yes we won the miracle of medina but remember we were on our we're on our knees at one stage no we're heading for a record loss at one stage in medina you know um so so we have a lot to do still and we have a lot uh you know we we can't get the i like to use the word giddy we can't get too giddy over here about how great we are but there's no doubt we're now we're now going to be 34 years in a row without losing at home i mean that is a serious serious record when you think of the quality of the american players that have come and tried to win here yeah i look i'm not i'm not you know, omitting, you know, some of these blowouts, but, but, but you're 10 and four, uh, since, since 93, uh, you've won seven straight in Europe. You're eight and three in this century. You've won three times on American soil since the United States won last in Europe. Um, I, I just, I'm just, I look at the world ranking these teams. I, I find that to be highly overrated when it comes to trying to assess. And I've seen this stat trotted out, the aggregate average world ranking of, of the American team, the European team. How many times do we have to see the result to know that that's a totally inflated stat when it comes to trying to assess who's going to be good and who's not? But it, it's, it's a metric. It's a, it's, a, it's a baseline to look at. The United States has had great talent for the last 30 years. And yet you've thrown more haymakers and landed far more the United States. And oh, by the way, Paul, it also was during a time where the two greatest players of this generation 
We're representing the United States in most, if not all of these. And you can say, well, that dynamic was kind of undermined the United States. I, I think there may be some truth to it. The truth is that Mickelson and Woods were on a lot of these teams and they didn't win, Paul. That's why I think you guys are one of the best teams that I've seen in my lifetime. I want to read you something. My intuition tells me you've read the book Legacy by James Kerr. Yeah. Of course you have. Mm -hmm. um, there's a line on page 78. The strength of the wolf is the pack. That's who you guys are. And, and I say that because I, I think that vulnerability... I think what it does is create trust. I think you guys make yourself and you're willing to be vulnerable to each other. These little videos, getting emotional, e exposing like who you are deep down. Not an easy thing to do. I actually think it's a sign of great strength in the individual to be willing to do that. I think those types of things, Paul, embolden your team. Because when you look around and you look at someone like John Rahm and he's weeping, looking at a 90-second video of people who are the most important people in his life talking about him, and these guys see that, I, I think that's a very powerful thing. I, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. You know, we are very good at that, about, about touching the heart. As I say, you touch the heart, magic happens. Um, you know, and you take away pressure as well too. You take away pressure when you when they're doing it, um, when they're doing it on their own terms and um, stuff that's really, really important to them. And, and I think Luke did a wonderful job of really touching the heart and inspiring. Touching the heart is inspiration, and inspiration is something that is uh, pressure free. You know, when you're inspired to do something, it's pressure free. Uh, there's not a heavy weight of expectation and burden on top of you. It's it's a sense of adventure. Uh, and I think we do a really good job of of, of creating that. I, I really do. Um, I, I've certainly always felt that with Ryder Cups. It's not, it's not. Oh my God, we have to win. Uh, it's the opposite. It's like, okay, here we go, another adventure. You know, strap 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 yourself in. This is going to be fun, and uh, this is going to bob and weave. It's going to be a hundred mile an hour, but it's going to be fun. And 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 I and I think you know we do a good job of that. Um, and, and as I say, go back to Luke. I think he did a, a great job in, in elevating so much of what we've done before. But he didn't stray outside what's been successful. The um, the, the Luke candidacy for for twenty five. I get it. You get caught up in the haze of victory, and it's powerful stuff. And he did a, he did a fabulous job in every department. What he said at the opening ceremony. I mean, that's the eloquence. All of that, very impressive. What is the process? since he's already been the captain and knowing that this is such a career appointment and, and let's say there is a re-entry of all those live guys. I mean, they're lined up like G fives on a tarmac to captain your side. How plausible is it that, that Luke will, will represent at Beth page as the captain? Yeah, I think there's a good chance of that. Um, I don't think we're going to do anything immediately. Um, I don't even know. Uh, if we are going to use the same process we did before um, with the three most recent captains, that's up for discussion. The players' committee um, will make that decision. There's about 15 people on that players' committee. David Howell is the chairman of that. They will convene now in the next month um, and there will be a debrief as to what went on. Uh, there will be a broad discussion uh, as to you know how... How are we going to go about naming the next captain? Uh, and then we'd slowly kind of 
you know, gather information together and, 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 you know, whatever that process may be, we'll put that in place and decide where we want to go. Um, you know, are live guys going to be part of the conversation or not? Uh, again, we won't probably won't know that till, you know, they say 31st of December before, you know, some outcome is, is delivered. Uh, and now they're talking about maybe that being extended for a few more months. I don't know. Can we wait that long, uh, to know whether they're in or out? Probably not. Um, so, We'll have to just wait and see. There's so much to happen um, in the next uh, few months. And um, but you know, I'll say it again. You know, we've nailed this template at home. We're doing great at home. But you know, we we were we, you know we were devoid of a lot of things uh, when we played when we played away. And you know, we're going to have to look at that and how we go about things playing away from home. The the, the whole live component. Look, Yasser. It, I mean, the cleansing is already well underway. And he's playing at the Dunhill with Martin Slumbers. Um, you know, that that executed by Johan Rupert, I, you get a smile on your face. Um, my, my gut tells me that, that there, there is going to be re-entry. Uh, the American side, obviously, Brooks Kepka was on the team. Um, but we're talking about, you mentioned some of these names. We're not talking about Lee Westwood playing. We're talking about him being there and being part of, 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 of the team again in some capacity, Garcia. McDowell, Casey, Stenson, Poulter. I mean, that is that is heady. That's a heady group of of guys with a lot of experience, a lot of success. Does your gut tell you they're going to be involved? My gut at the moment, my gut is saying probably not, to be honest. Um, but uh, I'm not going to rule anything out. Uh, it's not for me to decide. Uh, it's it's for the, the current players who will have a big, big, big input on that. Um, you know, the players who stayed loyal to the tour, um, you know, will 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 make that decision, not me. Uh, so there's a long way, there's a long way to get to in terms of negotiation uh, for them to be, um, you know, part of the conversation. I think it's fair to say that that's not going out in a limb in any way. I think all doors are open. I'm not, certainly not close any doors. Um, but, you know, a lot of things were said and a lot of disrespect to the, to the DP World Tour was said publicly. Um, and, you know, that's not forgotten. Um, but look, we've come a long way, as you say, you know, uh, six months ago, I'd have said probably no chance. Now I'm saying, of course, there's a chance, you know, the doors are open, but there's still, there's a lot of discussion to go on. And I won't be front and center of those discussions. You know, the John Rams, the Rory McIlroy's, the Victor Hovland's in particular, will have a big say on that. You know, the big players in the team uh, will have a big say. And along with the players committee, you know, they will collectively come up with uh, a yay or nay decision. Uh, and from there, you know, we, we can move forward. But it's at the moment, we can't make a decision on that until, you know, there's clarity in terms of, you know, where, you know, where this deal is going to end up. Rory, um, he said on Sunday night, he thought it benefited them uh, that they that they weren't there. And he was he was not being disrespectful. He just his point was it forced him and Rom and Hovland to to take positions that they wouldn't have otherwise. And it's not like Rory's bashful. He was already absolutely one of the leaders of the team. He has, he has a big presence. But I want to ask you about his performance because I back in May at the PGA Championship, Paul, I asked him, can, can ruthless Rory still exist? And the, the example I gave was the PGA when he won at Valhalla. He all and out punted Ricky and Phil off that 18th hole. Like, get the hell out of the way. I'm closing this deal. And I'm not suggesting he's been timid in the decade since. And his answer was, 
That's exhausting to be that way. And I don't think I need to be that way to win golf tournaments. I thought he was pretty damn ruthless this past week. And he certainly was, Paul, on Sunday. He had an earnestness about him like, I'll be damned. I don't care if it's Sam Burns. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, I don't care if it's Lanny Watkins. Put anybody out there. I'm going to drub your ass. I thought ruthless Rory came to play this week. I think that's very, very insightful, Gary. Um, there's not one word of what you just said I would disagree with. Rory's heart's on fire. He's a different animal. And um, it certainly was on fire this week. Well, what happened on Saturday, um, you know, he really felt um, aggrieved about what happened. And uh, he came out with a focus about him on Sunday. I mean, he was six under par. He shot. He played some of the best golf of anybody on Sunday, you know. Uh, he just didn't win his game. I mean, he played sensational golf. But he had a look about him. You know, he had an aura about him. And it wasn't just this crazy, you know, emotion-filled stuff that we saw the night before in the car park. This was a, a genuine sense of purpose and focus about him. Uh, and I've no doubt that, you know, what happened the night before drove him to that place. And I think that's when Rory plays his best. It's when Because he's such an inspirational uh, player. And, and, and when that heart of his is on fire, he goes to a new place. And, and I, I think we saw that last week. That was his best ever ride a cup. Uh, it's no no coincidence. I think Luke did a wonderful job of of having him emotionally engaged all week long. And maybe, you know, his point is, you know, with those, you know, those big personalities not in the picture, it kind of forced him into more of a leadership role, uh, which he was happy to do. But it's not a leadership role as in, come on, guys, stand on the table. Here I come. This is what I'm going to do, all full of emotion. You know, you can lead in, in a lot of ways. And, and leading by example is the best way to do it. Because that's what I learned from from, you know, the Montes. It's not that Monty spoke. <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> Monty or Elizabeth or any of those guys spoke more passionately than anybody else in team meetings. Far from it. They just led by example and they led by aura and they led by um, body language. And, uh, you know, that's what you want from your top players. I mean, who wouldn't want to just look around the room and you see John Ram sitting in the corner? I mean, talk about an imposing figure. And then you put his golf game and you put his attitude on top of it. That's a pretty formidable package that John Ram has got there. And you go, boy, oh boy, I'm glad he's sitting in our corner. I'm glad he's, he's sitting here with blue on him rather than red. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd agree with all you say. I think Rory was very, very emotionally invested. And I don't. I think there is certainly a, a strong reason that why he played so well was because he was so emotionally invested. Is that type of stuff transferable when you're when you're out there alone? Um, and, and, you know, Augusta National next April, I think it's, an, it's, it's the widest Rubicon any player has had to try to cross. With all due respect to Gene Saracen in 1935, I, it, I thought that Brandel years ago, the, the best line I've heard about Saracen winning the, the Masters in 35, he said that was akin to winning the Hero World Challenge, uh, which... I mean, it was. I mean, in 1930, it was a gathering of friends, and, and Jones was playing. And what Rory's trying to do there is such a significant achievement that, that there's so much beyond the, the physical part of going out and the executing of it and the run-up of it. Um, obviously, he's got the makeup to do it, but can a week like this, is there residual that it come next April, if, let's say he completes the career Grand Slam that it wouldn't surprise you if he pointed to a weekend in late September in Rome that could have been a part of all of it? Well, I mean, that's up to Rory and Rory's team, you know, and, um, you know, to, to, to sit down and analyze. And he's very good at doing this, analyzing. And, and, and maybe he's learned something about himself this week. 
and he's learned something, you know, that, you know, when his heart is emotionally on fire, like you've just seen that, hey, hey, maybe I need to do that, man. You know what I mean? Put one and one together and go, okay, well, actually, you know, I said that, but actually the opposite is true. You know, validation is a great thing. You know, the ability for all sports people to sit down and analyze on the on the end of a performance, good, bad, or indifferently, and use it as a learning to say, okay, well, actually, you know what? I thought something different, but this week I felt that way, and I'm going to do more of what I did this week because, you know, it worked. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. We'll wait and see, but certainly uh, he was a different animal this week because I don't think he played his best, Gary. I don't think he's on his game. I don't think Roy I didn't McElroy think Friday played he played now. particularly well. No, but he got jobs done. Yes. You know, and I mean, just think how he closed games as well. You know, some some of those tee shots into 17 to close out games. Now that, that's a part three over 200 yards. And it's a very, very narrow, skinny green with a massive roll off on the left-hand side, heavy rough on the right, and a green that's tilted right to left. So it's not like it's a massive target to hit at. You know, and every time he did a bit between his teeth coming up to that 17, he delivered. Um, and, you know, I think he's, um, you know... He was able to pull off the shots in the heat of battle. Um, and, uh, and you know, that's the key to in, in anything. You know, that's the key to anything. You know, he does it in regular tour events, you know, and look at his record in tour events. And when he gets a gets a, a sniff of winning the FedEx, how he's able to close the deal in those. So it's transferring that into the big moments in major championships. The, and, yeah. The, 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 the incident on Saturday night, you guys were live on the air. I thought, you know, you and Rich and Brandel, the whole team had a great week. But you're reacting in real time to, to, to a camera, you know, sitting there, you know, capturing these images in a, in a parking lot. And you're like, I love it. I love it. Now, you're a footballer, so I'm not surprised. And look, I loved it, too. But the incident itself, I thought Joe had temporary insanity. I, I, I just think he, it was almost like it was an out-of-body experience. Um, and I got to believe there's got to be a lot of regret on his part. But when stuff like that happens, you get beyond that moment. Is that good for the event? I think it's good for the event. I think, you know, if, if sport doesn't have passion, whether you're a player or whether you're a supporter, and you don't have huge, that, those two words again, emotional investment in the team or the player, that's when sport is electric. And, you know, in our debrief after Whistling Straits, and we had a lot of headwinds in Whistling Straits, you know, it was on the back of COVID. We you know we had no practice rounds up there. We had an aging team. We had a team out of form. We had no European fans uh, allowed travel. Um, you know, there was a lot of things were, were against us. But one of the things that was came out very clear and one of the things that, you know, certainly spoken a lot with Luke with in the last two years and my input very strongly was this uh, sense of engagement that we didn't look like a team ready for the fight. We, you know, we were a team that was kind of laying down quickly and the might of America, just like an avalanche, came at us and we just kind of, you know, we, we, we got suffocated by them. Uh, the reason we lost by a record margin in Whistling Straits was not because we because America had the best team ever out and, you know, we had no chance. The scoring against par doesn't indicate that, Gary. The scoring was quite moderate against par that America had to do to knock us into a, a record loss. Um, you know, doing the debrief and the scoring afterwards, I think we averaged about four or five under in four ball matches. We averaged uh, two under in the uh, in the singles and we averaged just, just under even par in the foursomes. Now, on a golf course in 2019 that that, that Jason Day 
scored the lowest ever record score to win a major championship and a golf course that was set up by Steve Stricker and the Americans. We talk about home advantage yes. to really suit them. And that was take away all the rough, you know, and, and make the green, make, make the golf course a birdie fest, which suits America more. You know, our scoring against par was very, very moderate. So one of the things that we came away and we talked about and things we had to fix was, you know, where was the emotion? Where was the fight? You know, why, you know, was it just the headwinds that make us kind of lifeless in terms of, you know, it was only when Shane Lowry showed a bit of a battle on the second day that we kind of kind of looked like we'd something about us. Um, so, you know, it was one of the things that Luke had took on side very much and where the videos came from. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that he did was about igniting the fire back in our team again. And you never know if it's going to work. Because the worry always is, well, you know, all these guys live in Palm Beach now. They're best friends. They play in the PGA Tour full time. Are, you know, can we recreate that passion that Seve had, that I had, that Monty had, that Darren Clark had, that Wester and Poulter had? You know, can we ignite that in the modern player? Because the modern player lives in America. Many of them are married to American uh, women and the families are brought up there and they're, they're friends with the PGA Tour guys, unlike we were, where we played very much Europe and America played America. So we worried about all that. So Luke went a lot of, and this is a lot, to his eternal credit, he obviously did a lot of work behind the scenes, but you still don't know leading into the Ryder Cup, is this, you know, has he done it? Can we light the fire again emotionally? And I'm sitting on the set live with Brandel and Rich. And this video comes to us. It comes in our ears straight away. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. This just happened. React to this quickly. And I didn't know what was coming. And when I saw Rory coming out of that car with that on fire like that, I thought, hallelujah. Well done, Luke. Well done, Luke. That's, that's how I honestly thought. That fire, that showed me. That was evidence and validation that Luke nailed it, getting the mo- emotionally wired up. And, uh, you know, that was great to see. And I think that augurs well for us going forward in the Ryder Cup. That yes, these, these modern guys, they might be living in America and, you know, all the things you do in America and friends with the American team, but that passion is still there. And uh, we're able to ignite it again. So I think, again, credit, huge credit to Luke on that. Yeah, I, I, look, this is the human condition. And, and it's also important to say, gosh, I wish that didn't happen, but I'm glad it did happen. I think that friction is the essence of competition. You get chippy when you're trying to get an advantage, whether it's a physical advantage at the line of scrimmage in a football game or, or whatever it may be. Chippiness and tension and friction. It's why we lean forward in seats and watch these competitions. I, I loved it myself. A couple more things before I let you go. Do you think the United States will play the Tiger card? He's got the first right of refusal for captaincies. Going forward, do you think they play that card at Beth Page? I think a lot will depend. A bit like we're waiting on see to where, where this deal goes with, um, uh, in terms of you know are the live guys going to be part of the next conversation? Uh, I think Tiger is front and center of that, and there's a structure with that at the moment. Uh, wants to get to the end of the road with that and decide, you know, you know, is there going to be a deal with the Saudis or not? Um, and, and I think until that's concluded, he probably won't commit one way or the other. So if that's concluded by the 31st of December, like they say it will, uh, well, then we'll know early in January whether Tiger wants to now move on and um, and be part of it. So we'll just have to wait and see uh, on that. Um, there's no doubt he will be a captain in time, uh, but I know that he's distracted at the moment with being front and centre of all the negotiations going on behind the scenes. And um so, yeah, we'll have to wait. But just going back to your, just before finishing that point, yes. you're talking there, 
I didn't finish on the American team yes. uh, in, 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 in Italy. And, you know, when I saw Joey and I saw Cantley and I saw the unitedness of the American team on that Sunday afternoon, um, coming down the last few holes, when all the crowd were giving them stick with the hats off and all that, and I saw how they performed and I saw the emotion. That was the first time I saw America emotionally invested all week. You know, they were quiet the first day. You know, there was not a lot of fire and brimstone about them, but it certainly came out on Sunday afternoon. And, you know, it, that, that's, that's a say. I think both teams can learn from that. You know, that, that, that passion is, is absolutely crucial to the performance of any team. The, um, it, it's interesting, as, the, as he's doing what he did on 16, 17, and then 18, they, they got something, like you said. They, 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 mm. you know, they saw their own blood. They threw a punch back. They win the session. Yeah. They do it in dramatic fashion. Paul, I thought it was, it was immediately flipped because of the incident. Because then Europe goes mm. back to the hotel, and they got to bug up their ass because of what had just yeah. happened. It was, it was almost like we had it, and then we lost it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, we still had the same at point advantage. You know, we were five yes. points ahead after the first day. We're still five points ahead after the second day. So we're still in a great position. But we had lost some momentum. And, and um, But, you know, I think, again, going back, I know what would have went on there. Um, they would have went back to the team room. And Luke would have been a little bit worried uh, that, you know, if motion overspills, it affects performance. You know, when everything you do as a captain, Gary, everything you do is driven towards performance. And, you know, we would have been too revved up uh, in, in, in the car terms. And, you know, that meeting, I would say, on the Saturday night was to take the revs back down again and, and, and bring it to a place where there's going to be focused concentration the following morning. And I think, you know, I looked a lot at body language on the Saturday, on the, sorry, on the Sunday morning. I, I looked a lot of body language. I was commentating at the time for Sky and I was more concerned with body language than anything else. You know, were we going to come out over revved and too emotional and that was going to affect our performance? Or, you know, did the team meeting the previous night and, and, and Luke and his backroom team take them, take them down to a proper place of focus? And I could tell by the first two or three games we're in business here. Even Tyrrell Hatton was not losing the head. And uh, that, <laughs> that told me that... Uh, there was a good sense of focus. And we won four points out of the first six. And at that stage, then it's done. I know there was a bit of a, a bit of a lull then before we closed, closed the deal. Um, but, you know, we, we had, we had we'd broken the back of it at that stage. The, the whiff of compensation, it's not new. You can go back to the late 90s, obviously, Omiro Duvall. Do you think compensation will be a part of this story, at least on the American side, by 2025? And do you think the Europeans will absolutely pass on the idea of getting paid? I think both teams uh, will have uh, there's a there's a lot to be negotiated out in the next six months, Gary, on okay. both sides, and it would be unfair if the American team were going to be paid and we were not. Absolutely. Um, so I think there needs to be a proper place found negotiations with all 24 players and and uh, organizations involved that everybody's going to be happy. Um, whether that's not being collectively not being paid, uh, whether that's collectively all being paid. Or whether that's a bit of bit of both, um, and a nominal fee for everybody, or whatever the case may be, I don't know. But the, you know, Setwa and Guy Kinnings in particular, the heads of both organisations, have a lot of work to do in the next six months to get. We need to get to a common ground in all of this um, because you can't just have one team do it and get paid a lot, and then the other team not. Um, personally, I hope it gets to a place where 
neither team uh, is paid um, because I think the money that top professional golfers are earning at the moment is huge on so many different levels. Many of them are, you know, they're all going to be, they're all set up for life no matter what. Once you make a Ryder Cup standard nowadays, you're set up for life anyway, whether it be through your pension fund or whether it be in the prize money you've earned. So, you know, I think for one tournament every two years, uh, it would be great to give back. You know, on the European side, um, you know, the, the DP World Tour needs the revenue from the Ryder Cup. Yes. So it's helping all of the guys who are coming through and it's putting on events in the Challenge Tour, it's putting on decent prize funds in the DP World Tour. Um, and, and that's really important for us. It's a lifeline for us. And on, 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 on the American side, you know, it's the 28,000 PGA pros uh, around America, you know, and, and giving money to them so that they can bring young boys and girls into the game and, and create the future pantry camp laser you know, future Justin Thomas's or whatever. There's a huge amount of investment goes back into it. Um, so, you know, I, I think both sides are honourable in terms of, of of what they're trying to do with the revenues that come in. It's not like some rich private equity company is taking the money and running off into the sunset and giving it to their shareholders. This is money that's going back on both sides. It's going back into the game. It's going back into the ecosystem on both sides that has churned out these players in the first place. So I think for one tournament every two years, with all the money that's in the game at the moment and such, you know, so crass the amount of money that that are so put to the front uh, in the conversations around golf, I think it will be a wonderful narrative for the future of the Ryder Cup if it was not about money and it was about the 24 players being representative of, you know, helping both ecosystems that 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 made them who they are last thing my, my dad was a team athlete and he said to me early in my life and i didn't get it at first but he said gary collective achievement is one of life's great rewards and he did it as an athlete early he did it as a leader of a, of a corporation later uh, you were a team athlete and then you played this lonely existence of being a professional golfer but then you captained this side what stirred in you as somebody who you know, was, is, is still a part of this system. As objective as you are and as valuable as your voice is to the game to analyze this stuff, what stirred in you Sunday night when it was over? Uh, a sense of, um, you know, from the jaws of, of, of a record defeat two years ago and everybody writing us off, um, an American media writing us off, this Ryder Cup is done for the next 10 years, you know, lots of articles that this is the best ever American team to go forward, Europe have got nothing, uh, we were on the floor, and then Liv hit us, you know, in the polar axis where we lost a lot of our, our big names and, and, and big players and future captains uh, through Liv, and then putting in a captain uh, that then went to Liv as well too, um, in, in Henrik Stenson, you know, we were on the floor, you know, where, how are we going to come back against the might of America? And, and uh, you know, to be a, a whisper in, in Luke's ear and part of the decision to put him in place and, 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 and to see how far we came in those two years, Gary, um, you know, and, and to watch Luke and his backroom team and to listen to their ideas over the two years evolving. And, you know, just it, it's just been great to be part of it. I really enjoyed sitting kind of in the background, you know, not in the front line like him and his vice captains were, but, kind of sitting there in the back line and and and, and I really enjoyed uh, uh, I really enjoyed kind of being being a, being a bit part of it and um, you know unearthing the young talent that we did and you know the rookies and you know this young Auberg coming through and you know he looks like something special and you know uh, the high guard as well too and and to also go out to the you know we one of the things we re-engineered uh, you know in the debrief after Whistling Straits was the lack of a Seve Trophy style event uh, which I've certainly benefited from, both as a player 
and in terms of captaining that twice before I elevated into the Ryder Cup captaincy. And without that Seve trophy, I would never have been a captain. Um, and I probably wouldn't have played as well in Ryder Cups as I did without first having that, certainly in my first Ryder Cup. Um, so, uh, you know, we reinstigated that. We call it the Hero Cup. We put it in Abu Dhabi. You know, I was in Florida at the time, travel all the way from Florida uh, over to Abu Dhabi uh, to work with Luke and his vice captains and the young guys coming through to meet Seth Stracker for the first time, to meet the high guards for the first time, um, you know, to see Shane and and and, um, uh, and Tommy Fleetwood there and all the other potential young guys. And we're stripping through everybody, which guys, Bob McIntyre, which guys could step up, you know, to talk to the team and, you know, on a few of the nights and for Elizabeth to be there with me and, you know, to be a part of that team environment again. You know, that was a big, big part. You know, that, that Hero Cup way back in January was a big part. And I was talking to Steph Strack at the party on, on, on Sunday night. And, and he was making that point that, you know, uh, if he hadn't had that, that Hero, Hero Cup, because it wasn't just getting to know his teammates and being part of a team and getting to know people like me and, you know, you know Luke overseeing everything and meeting, you know, getting, be involved in the team. But it was also meeting what we opened up this conversation with, the backroom team of the Ryder Cup. Because we had every one of those at the at the Hero Cup in Abu Dhabi, every single one of them. So the players knew who they all were, person to person, uh, and then we were able to uh, elevate that into um, uh, into the Ryder Cup. And then it was it was it, it made I won't say seamless, but it made the transition very very easy. Uh, we've got a, a guy as well, Michael Gibbons, that works with Scott Scott Crockett behind the scenes, who's a lot of fun. Every, players love him. He works part of the media. He does all the viral videos and that kind of thing. Those funny videos. He's headed does that. He's a figure of fun, but also does a, a very important job there in creating that sense of fun behind the scenes. So you know, all of those people were in Abu Dhabi, and uh, you know, then you just you plug in the Bob McIntyre to them with the Ryder Cup. You plug in the Seth Strakas. Uh, you know, you plug in the high guards, and you know, it's like. You know, so, so so those little things and to be part of that and to kind of reassess everything, put structures in place and then to watch the evolution of that under loose guidance has been uh, has been very, very pleasurable, uh, you know, because we, as I say, we got beaten by a record margin. Let's not forget that. Uh, I, I didn't mention his name. I, it's worth mentioning Justin Rose. At the beginning of the year, you would have thought the window was painted shut on his Ryder Cup career as a player. Um, I think he's he's one of the more underrated studs in this event. I mean, he was the man of the match. I thought on your team in 14, he, he made the bomb on Phil at Medina in 2012. For him to have the moments he had, there's no way in the world, Paul, that most people who cover the game who are close to your side would have thought at the beginning of the year, yeah, keep an eye on him. And then he wins at Pebble Beach, and he does enough, and he gets on the team. How about the moments he had? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we needed, yeah, you always need in a team is a balance between young and old and, uh, you know, experience and young. Because when you have four rookies in the team, ideally you want four guys who are well down the road in terms of experience. Now, I'm not talking about John Ram and Victor Hovland and Rory McIlroy because those guys have got a different role to play in yep. the team and Tommy Fleetwood because they're, 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 they're different. But you need the guys who are down the road a little bit. And we had a dearth a dearth of those because, you know, Sergio was not going to be available. Westwood was not going to be available. Um, you know, Polk was not going to be available. So, you know, we're, we're looking around at the older guys and going, you know, who's going to step up here? And obviously, Justin was a guy that was highlighted. And we were delighted when he won in Pebble Beach. I mean, pretty much once he won in Pebble Beach, he was on the team. All he had to do was kind of, <laughs> you know, just keep on playing to the end of the year and make the odd cut. And he was going to be on because we needed those guys. And, and then you saw the role that he played, you know, the schooling. And I use that word, uh, you know, 
you know, in the best sense that it is. How he schooled Bob McIntyre in the first day and the second day uh, was just great. And, you know, Bob McIntyre then, you know, because of that, moves on to a singles then and goes ahead and wins a singles. And now Bob McIntyre, when he hits the road in the next Ryder Cup, should he make it? He's off and running. He's up and running. You know, he's... um, So... We probably lacked another one or two Justin Roses. You know, if a Westwood on form would have been great for us and made us an even better team because, you know, if, if Liv hadn't happened because, you know, we could have taken maybe the high guard and put him under his wing, you know. And, and you know, certainly I used Westwood in that role uh, with Jamie Donaldson. And, and Jamie was the same with Don to be the hero uh, by holding, you know, you know winning the, the winning point in Glen Eagles. Um, you know, I had Gray McDowell overlooking uh, uh, Victor Dubasson for the same reason. Absolutely. And again, he was Don and won his win the singles and you know so a graham another would be another good example of a guy that we would love to have if he had been available you know he would have been sitting there with uh justin as a guy who played one match each each day uh but his main job would have been to school one of the younger guys so we missed that we missed that but we covered it a bit um but we missed it uh you know how much i value the time you're you're awfully kind knowing that you're you're trying to get a little uh, vacation, a little downtime to, to take the time to share your thoughts. I know how much everyone's going to appreciate hearing all of this. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Gary, and great stuff. I listen to your podcast. It's great. You do great. You're a brilliant journalist on top of a great guy. So keep going. Happy for you. Paul, thank you so much. Once again, thank you to Paul McGinley for joining me. And, and I don't think it's hyperbolic for me to say that I think that the Team Europe is one of the great teams that we've seen in sports. They come together once every two years. And yes, they've been blown out a couple of times. But if you look back, especially since continental Europe was added to the side in 1979, they've been better, consistently better than the United States. Playing as a team in a sport, you associate with them doing it all alone. They understand the secret sauce. And even though Paul wasn't going to give away all the secrets, You got a sense of the things that are important that they touch upon to get this team wired to perform, and that they did. So thank you to Paul. Most importantly, thank you to you for watching and listening to this Five Clubs conversation.